Welcome to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Robert Holden and Steve Golubic about the history of tribal life prior to colonization, major historical events that set the stage for the relationship between the federal government and the tribes, and the beginnings of emergency management in tribal communities. Robert Holden is of Choctaw Chickasaw descent and is the former deputy director of the National Congress of American Indians, a national tribal government advocacy organization. Within NCAI, he has worked in emergency management and homeland security issues for a number of years. Currently, he works as a tribal liaison with NCBRT to bring valuable training to the tribal governments. Steve Golubic is of Ojibwe descent and is a Navy veteran who served in the Vietnam War. He is also a tribal liaison with NCBRT, where he has worked with us for the past five years. He assumed the position after he retired from federal service, where he served as the first full-time director of tribal affairs in the Department of Homeland Security. Prior to that position, he was the FEMA National Tribal Liaison for several years, serving in Washington, D.C. and around the country, working with tribal governments and tribal nations. Prior to his career in the federal government, he focused on emergency management in the tribal community, working with county, state, and federal governments. Co-hosting this series with me is Devon Cooper, who is the Assistant Director of Training and Outreach at NCBRT. Devon is a member of the Choctaw Apache Tribe of Ebarb, Louisiana, and has been with NCBRT since 1998. She reached out to Robert and Steve at a time when NCBRT had analyzed our programs and realized we needed to improve our outreach efforts to tribes. Their mission was to ensure tribes are made aware of NCBRT training and they have the same opportunities as state and local emergency responders to schedule and attend training. With Robert and Steve's guidance, NCBRT has been able to establish and grow relationships with several tribes and increase training in tribal communities. In addition to training, NCBRT is also launching the Tribal Public Safety Dialogue Series, which will be held monthly via Zoom to discuss emergency management topics. The first session in April will focus on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Thank you so much to Devon for joining us in this series. As Native presenters, we also want to give the proper respect and acknowledge Native peoples past and present. It's a given we can't cover everything in depth in this time-limited podcast. However, we have attempted to highlight some important facts and provide our listeners with a starting point. Subsequent podcasts will focus on the importance of inclusion of tribal nations in the makeup of the national fabric of emergency management and homeland security. Thank you so much to Robert and Steve for coming on the podcast and sharing with us today. So to start off, history books only go so far in telling the real story about tribal life. So can you tell us about the way of life and governance that the Native people have experienced prior to colonization? Native peoples um, have been on this continent, in this hemisphere, uh, way before the Europeans came over, um, the first immigrants before they came to these shores. Uh, At one time in the past, the the population uh, of Native peoples has been estimated to be 100 million to 200 million. they were here. This is their homelands. They governed themselves in what was more a way of life before the formation of the colonies and the signing of the Constitution. Um, 
these days are referred to as tribes, bands, pueblos, communities, native villages. But they all had their unique cultures um, and processes in terms of uh, how they were guided and 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 who were the uh, uh, principal officials, if you will. Uh, some had matriarchal societies, which meant that uh, Native women were revered and honored, and they were the real leaders of the tribes. Um, they actually uh, selected individuals for various positions within within their tribe. Um, there were commonalities um, in terms of what the criteria that would be used for selecting these leaders uh, could be humility, uh, serving other people, hunting skills, um, in uh, warriors and defense of the, uh, of, of the people. They were uh, exercising traditional forms of government, governance. And uh, as you said, you know, before the colonial eras, up until that time, they existed and interacted and they were here. And this, as I said, this was their homeland. Uh, continuing on with with that train of thought, uh, Native exor- uh, nations exercised traditional forms of governments, and many of the colonies, as they were established here in this country, treated the tribal nations as governments. Uh, they went so far as to uh, develop and sign treaties between the Native nations and the individual colonies. Um, and one example uh, of how that worked uh, during the time of colonization was that uh, in, in by recognizing tribal sovereignty, non-tribal citizens who were traveling through uh, Indian land were required to have a passport document uh, to travel through the lands rather than uh, just get on their horse and buggy, do whatever they had to do and, and get to where they wanted to go. They had to have a passport and it was checked so that the tribal people knew who was coming into their lands. When there was contact and, and when there was um, uh, there were enough people within these colonies um, who banded together and wanted to form their own uh, nation, if you will, uh, and, and develop these, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and so forth. When they did this, um, they looked to different models of governance. Uh, one of the models out there was uh, from the Iroquois Confederacy, which was basically six nations who had uh, uh, been together for uh, generations. Um, they had they were independent nations, but nevertheless, they still had a strong alliance, uh, and and they did many things together. But uh, in terms of how they met and and how they interacted and what the input into decision-making processes was uh, uh, a model that the, uh, the framers of the Constitution looked to uh, mimic. Can you tell us a bit about the major historical events that led to the status of the relationship between the federal government and tribes today? There are a lot of um, uh, high points and low points, I guess, if you will, in terms of uh, the relationship between Native nations and government that was formed, as we talked about, that came under this constitution. Um, as we said, there were uh, treaties that were signed primarily for uh, peace and friendship. Um, and later on, there were developed a um, uh, treaty-making uh, era. But, but before that, in, in, let me add that in this constitution, 
Native nations are recognized um, uh, as uh, nations, and there's a clause, uh, Article 1, in the Constitution that talks about regulating commerce with the Indian tribes. These treaties were uh, recognized internationally, if you will, because, you know, nations don't make treaties with uh, nations that they can conquer, basically. So there was, you know, what we're, what's called a non-term detente at the time. You know, they were they were interacting and they uh, uh, coexisted to some degree. Um, and so these treaties were made and uh, they're still in a force in effect, if you will. Well, I think it's important to know that uh, the treaties that were made between the United States government after the, the government was formed with the tribes um, indicates something that's very important that maybe people don't know. The United States government does not make treaties with states uh, that are part of the U.S. government. Um, so it's it's different and, and tribes are different because they're recognized as nations. Um, they made uh, valid treaties, uh, agreed to different things over, over time as nations, as, as sovereign nations uh, with self-governance and with a government structure within the, within the tribes uh, that was different than the states. Uh, a misconception is that during the, the treaties uh, that and after uh, states started wielding uh, states' rights and states' powers, that um, tribes were um, parts of states or, or controlled by, governed by the states. And that's not really the case. Um, it perhaps has evolved into that uh, to some degree over the years, but uh, in the beginning, in the, in the uh, period of time that we're talking about now, uh, during the treaty-making time, the, the U.S. government made treaties with nations. They didn't make treaties with, tri uh, with um, uh, states. So, um, you know, that, that makes tribes different, and it, it uh, gives tribes a status with, within the hierarchy of, of governments, um, that puts basically the, the tribal nations equal to uh, the United States government because there were, the treaties were signed as nations on a government-to-government -government basis. Once the Supreme Court was developed, uh, there were, you know, the, some of the states sought to uh, vo uh, invalidate the rights and authorities of Native nations. One famous case called uh, Wooster versus Georgia in 1832 uh, Supreme Court John Marshall, um, in his opinion, said that Indian nations had, have always been considered as distinct, independent political communities, retaining their original um, natural rights as the undisputed possessors of the soil. The very term nation so generally applied to them means a people distinct from other. So, you know, this principle bolsters uh, the fact that there was no state or outside jurisdiction in tribal governmental matters. And from that, there was developed the uh, body of federal Indian law. But what you have to also remember is that these cases were adjudicated in a non-native court. There are many cases following that that you know, were uh, de detrimental to native peoples, but this was probably, probably you know, one of the more historic um, decisions that came out of this. And what also uh, other cases concluded that during this era of, uh, uh, of um, uh, pushing the boundaries or so to speak of uh, tribal rights and authority, 
came uh, decisions that limited uh, that tribes have limited jurisdiction within exterior the exterior reservation boundaries, and and that the federal government does have plenary plenary authority, uh, plenary power over tribes, but there is also a trust responsibility towards the tribes, and this federal trust obligation still exists. It includes the protection of uh, trust lands and the right to use those lands. Um, and basically, uh, they uphold tribal sovereignty and self-governance, uh, giving tribes the right to uh, to do what they do now, providing community service regarding health, education, public safety, and many other matters. Well, one of the important things that we wanted to uh, make people aware is that uh, Indian affairs or tribal affairs in the early 1800s were um, carried out by the U.S. Department of War, which is quite interesting as far as we're concerned. Um, and it meant that the, that uh, everything obviously was managed in a military militaristic bureaucracy um, that implemented a policy of conquest uh, where the tribes were uh, being basically pushed around and, and moved around uh, the country uh, away from their uh, historic uh, tribal ancestral lands. Since that time, there's not been much difference in the policy change that came when uh, Indian Affairs was transferred out of the Department of War and into the Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, around about 1824. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is a division of the Department of Interior, still has, um, we'll call it jurisdiction over, over tribes and, and uh, oversight over tribes today. The BIA's goal, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs goal at the time, <clears throat> was the destruction of tribal self-governance. Uh, which meant that they were still carrying out the policies of the U.S. government and the Department of War to uh, ensure that uh, tribes did not have um, uh, power of self-governance. Uh, and they were exerting a dictatorial power over, over the Indians and, and their lands, not just their lands, but the resources and the people. Um, so we, we didn't have a very good working relationship with the federal government during that period. What's also known in historical fact is that, you know, the immigrant um, process was significant during that this time as well. You know, people kept coming from other countries uh, and, and trying to inhabit lands that they felt were being, weren't being used. And uh, there was a lot of development uh, in terms of uh, everything from manufacturing, mining, cutting timber and so forth, and uh, native lands were people, non-native people felt that these weren't being utilized as, as they should. Um, and so there began, you know, the, the, this treaty period um, ended in 1871, but then at the same time, it was a an era of treaty breaking. Uh, there were over 100 plus treaties made, and each one of these has been broken unilaterally by the United States government. Um, and there was, it also precipitated these land grabs uh, by the federal government. Uh, in the 1880s, um, there was something called the General, uh, Dawes General Allotment Act. It was a deliberate land grab by the federal government. And the gist of it was to uh, turn native peoples into farmers and ranchers and turn them away from their traditional beliefs and uh, ways by abolishing reservations. Uh, what it did was allocate uh, plots of land to through this uh, uh, legislation to allocate plots of lands to individuals. Uh, the heads of the households would be getting uh, 
land under under this uh, misguided formula. And that way, once all of the individuals of, of, of a certain tribe, let's say, were were, were div was divvied up and given out, there would be what was called surplus lands. And generally, these surplus lands were probably the most productive, uh, the ones that uh, all of these uh, uh, interest uh, business interests wanted to get their hands on. Uh, so this is this is what became of of, of those lands and. Uh, um, what also happened at that time is that you know the Indian lands that were held that were possessed by by Indian people as individuals, that also came out of trust status, meaning that it was not protected. Uh, but you know the Secretary of Interior and, uh, and other officials didn't tell or inform Native peoples of of what was happening. Uh, that this land would no longer be protected, and at the same time, all of the states were coming into being. And states have had state laws regarding um, uh, taxation and so forth. And so there would be these lands that would be subject to taxation. Uh, they should have been protected under, under uh, a trust responsibility. But nevertheless, the federal government was given uh, letting the states hold these proceedings that for, for unpaid taxes, which the natives had no uh, were unaware of what was happening. And then, so there would be foreclosures for non-payment of taxes and so forth. And uh, what happened was that the Indian land holdings uh, in around 1887 was about 138 million acres uh, during this allotment process uh, act. And in 1934, when this uh, uh, allotment act period ended, it was dwindled down to 48 million acres. You know, it's interesting because we seem to be going from one one period of oversight or imposition of of tribal uh, lands and tribal people, um, and you think, okay, by now we probably ought to be where we're going to going to be in our relationships between the federal government and tribes, and then all of a sudden here comes another change uh, in tribal self governance um, when the Indian Reorganization Act was passed in 1934. Um, the Indian Reorganization Act uh, required tribal governments to refashion uh, their own governments uh, from traditional, uh, in some cases, or matriarchal in others, uh, communal in other, in other governments, but they had to refashion their internal governmental system to be more in line with a constitutional type government. Uh, and they, they were forced then to adopt tribal constitutions. All these uh, constitutions, not only uh, were they to be adopted by the tribes and passed by tribal governments, but they had to be approved um, as, as a valid uh, constitution by the Department of Interior. And it's one of those things that we've always questioned that if tribes are sovereign nations, why do tribes continue to have to have approval of another uh, of another government in in order to function and operate as as a tribal government, but that's that wasn't the only part of what happened with this reorganization act, as, as the federal government, um, specifically the Department of the Interior, appointed the first tribal officials uh, within each tribe, so that uh, they took away the ability or uh, the the right of the tribes to appoint their own officials. Um, <clears throat> this was a 
paternalistic kind of reformation um, that stifled tribal self-governments, or go not governments, but stifled tribal self-governance, uh, particularly because the, the tribes uh, and the tribal officials had no independence, couldn't make their own decisions and uh, in, in the areas of, of tribal matters uh, unless they were directed by the federal government. A few minutes ago, we were talking about uh, colonialism and, and how, uh, and the basis of that was that, you know, the, the, the settlers had thought that uh, uh, England was enforcing its governance uh, systems upon these people and they wanted to be free. Well, here we go again. You know, I mean, the, this, this, the native people that were living there, they had done everything they could in, in, to even set up their own systems of, of governance that were non-traditional. But again, the federal government imposes this system that they want upon native tribal governments. Uh, and and so that's that's the beginning of a long history or continuation of this contradiction in terms of policy. What right do they have to force uh, a, a foreign system upon native peoples when this is their homelands? When this you know this this is their lands and 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 they're certainly capable of governing themselves and and uh, and they should be able to have this own self determination, but. What was also happening is that once these <clears throat> constitutions were enacted and these systems were set up of, of, of constitutional governments, is that the federal government imposed a policy of appointing whoever would be the um, leader of that tribe. Uh, there were these traditional uh, systems of selecting leadership was gone uh, under this constitutional system that the federal government would appoint who they thought would be the best person that would continue to, <clears throat> uh, that they could have control over in, in this paternalistic uh, uh, process. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, we, you know, we're talking about many things that were not uh, <clears throat> conducive to tribal survival, but, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just restating the facts of, of, of this whole process. I mean, it's not been kind and it's, there was a lot of turbulence during this these, this era, and um, uh, lands, lives uh, were lost during this time, and so uh, we, we were still in a survival mode. <clears throat> but it didn't stop there, uh, you know. Going up through, uh, uh, coming up to earlier times, you know, in, in the forties in and fifties, there was something called the. Um, uh, termination era. It was uh, based on a, a congressional act called the Indian Termination Act of 1953. And it was disguised as an effort to end the subjuga subjugation of tribes from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It included a relocation policy of uh, resettling tribal citizens into uh, large urban areas um, and, and finding them jobs. And it supposedly to, you know, end racial discrimination and give them equal rights. It did neither of those things. Um, it was just a ruse to uh, assimilate um, Native peoples in, into mainstream America. And again, it was also used as um, a means to buy, buy out tribes. Tribes would be offered um, lump sum payments uh, to not be Native anymore, if you will, to uh, turn their backs on their tribal government's traditions and so forth. And they would be given a lump sum 
lump sum of money, and they would no longer be native uh, citizens of their nations because the nations uh, would not exist. But the uh, true fact is that um, it it was just another land grab because, again, the... um, land that was uh, had belonged to native peoples would be sold to these ben- business interests. Another part of this uh, reason for this termination was for the federal government to get out from under uh, what they de- seemed to be a burden of uh, providing for the stretch responsibility of, of providing programs and services to uh, tribal governments and citizens. Uh, which were part of this, uh, uh, this, this tre- these treaty rights. So it was a uh, usurpation of, of, of the treaty rights by the federal government. They wanted to unilaterally, again, uh, not only violate these treaties, but, but make, them, make them null and void. Nevertheless, uh, uh, the tribes banded together. Uh, they galvanized and, and, and were able to, to form these coalitions and, and fight off uh, uh, this this drastic uh, termination policy and and there's an organization called the National Congress of American Indians where I had worked which was uh, that was one of its uh, uh, the bedrock principles and, and the for- reason for the formation of that uh, organization back in 1944. We're not done yet. We still have to get to the end of the 20th century before we can move on. We do that basically. Um, by hitting into the 1970s when Congress passed the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act, it, it gave tribes uh, a greater autonomy um, by authorizing tribes to assume responsibility for programs and services uh, that were administered by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, it, this was, a, was seen as a, as a positive change in federal tribal relationships. The assumption, I guess, is, is that the responsibility uh, given to the tribes to contract and uh, manage their programs, um, services, functions of the tribes, activities through self-governance. Basically, what it did was was sort of unshackle uh, the tribes from some of the policies of the past that were more paternalistic or militaristic, uh, as it were, and as it, as it happened uh, in the early history between tribes in the United States. Uh, Today, uh, tribes now have a greater uh, ability to achieve economic stability uh, by developing economic and business enterprises uh, and becoming uh, much more self-sufficient than they had been over many years in the past. Um, And they're also able now to more easily exercise um, uh, inherent uh, rights to govern and, and protect themselves, their tribal citizens, their land, and, and most importantly, the resources. And, and one of the things that uh, tribal people, native people in this country have been doing uh, for thousands of years is, is protecting the land and the resources. Um, there were never the abuses um, that we see in, in modern times of, of uh, land, land pollution and some of the other things, uh, water pollution, um, that, that we have now. Tribes were very responsible in the past, and, and now uh, with uh, self-governance and self-determination, um, exercising those rights to, uh, to protect um, their inherent rights uh, to govern um, and protect lands and resources is very important for us now uh, in these days and, and moving forward as we have done and uh, 
the first 20 years of this new century? This um, uh, polar opposite um, policy of um, tribal self-governance and self-determination, is it's dramatic in the sense that uh, there are hundreds of examples of what tribes have done in order to counteract uh, the you know these uh, uh, last couple of centuries of of of, of uh, bad policy uh, and law, for instance, you know even in the education process that uh, tribes can contract to run their own education systems. Um, you know, growing up and and seeing and reading history books, which have changed dramatically uh, in terms of who writes them and 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 who what stories are depicted in them, in in that. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, that tribes were in the way, there was uh, manifest destiny, and that um, these these uh, things that were made up to justify uh, taking of lands and killing Native peoples, uh, uh, exterminating Native peoples for the lands and resources. It, it, it's that, you know, there, there are stories about who, who we are, where we came from, um, culture, uh, uh, preserving culture, language, and those sorts of things, uh, having uh, tribal court systems, law enforcement, um, managing resources. Uh, there are so many things that uh, that uh, tribal governments and, and citizens are able to do under uh, under their own uh, inherent right to govern and, and, and protect ourselves. So currently there are 574 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. So for those of us who aren't familiar, what does it mean for a tribe to be federally recognized? Well, most federally recognized tribes um, have received this uh, recognition of status through uh, various ways, uh, through treaties, through acts of Congress, presidential executive orders, uh, other administrative actions, uh, of the government um, and and through federal court decisions, a federally recognized tribe, uh, by definition, is an American Indian or Alaska Native tribal entity that's recognized as having a government to government relationship with the United States, and that includes uh, the responsibilities, the powers limitations and obligations attached to that designation as a federally recognized tribe. It also means that tribes are eligible for funding and services from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. One of the things that I like to point out to people is, is that um, there, there are two kinds of recognition, uh, very distinct in a lot of ways. One is the federally recognized tribes. The other one is tribes that are recognized by individual states or state-recognized tribes. Um, what I'd like to point out is that those tribes that are recognized by the states are not yet federally recognized tribes. Um, and it's important for people to know that tribes are still working to become federally recognized, not just so that they are eligible for funding and services, but to identify them as people and as a tribe. Uh, uh, being federally recognized um, as a tribe uh, possesses uh, the inherent rights of self-government, which means basically that tribes retain their tribal sovereignty. They're also entitled to receive the um, uh, benefits and services, as I mentioned, 
to protect their relationship uh, with the United States. It's, it's a special relationship uh, that continues to develop and evolve as, as we move on in time. Uh, we mentioned the 574 federally recognized American Indian and Alaska Native tribes and villages. Um, there are um, more than 100 not yet federally recognized tribes uh, that are still striving for that recognition. There's a dichotomy in terms of this federal recognition process that has been uh, developing. Um, in 1978, the Interior Department issued regulations for uh, uh, the federal acknowledgement process. Uh, it, it handles requests for uh, those uh, groups uh, or, or tribes seeking this federal recognition. Uh, there's criteria that's developed in the Code of Federal Regula Regulations, revised in 1994, uh, that provides, you know, an avenue for uh, populations, native populations, to step forward and apply. Uh, and then the criteria, you know, in terms of historical context, uh, language, population, uh, location, and, and many other things. And uh, the dichotomy is that, you know, some people say that, you know, why is it we're letting the federal government um, decide who's native and who's not? Uh, that's part of the uh, issue. But the other side of the uh, coin is that there are groups that may be questionably native, may have questionable um, backing and support or motives for seeking federal recognition. Um, and and may not be legitimate, but that's for you know that that's for uh, the the reasons for this process. But I guess on, on uh, the plus side also is that more native people and tribes are uh, weighing in on this whole federal acknowledgement process to make it um, more feasible to for for legitimate uh, native populations to step forward and some tribes have been you know gone through this process and become recognized uh, and as as Steve said a while ago that you know there there's ways other ways that uh, through uh, uh, congressional legislation that can uh, where tribes are federally recognized um, also you know with a decision of a court but this federally recognized uh, status also imposes uh, trust responsibility on the federal government, um, on, on, on the agencies um, and those officials who work in those um, agencies, the, the various departments, as well as the contractors. You know, a lot of federal government is, 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 is uh, uh, farming out some of the responsibilities, some of the programs and services uh, to uh, contractors, and so that uh, trust responsibility it, it goes with that uh, contract as well. They may not sometimes they don't realize that, but that's uh, certainly um, a, a, something that they should be cognizant of. Um, and this federal trust responsibility, it's a legally enforceable fiduciary obligation uh, in protecting tribal treaty rights and lands and assets, resources. Um, the Supreme Court has supported uh, this uh, fiduciary responsibility 
And it, you know, in some of these cases, talks about the, you know, the legal duties, the moral obligations, uh, and the expectations of of, of, of native uh, peoples of, of tribes, uh, tribal governments. Um, and it's just, you know, again, there are, you know, legal cases that want to uh, take away from uh, this responsibility, but also uh, there are cases that tribes push forth to ensure uh, that this federal uh, trust responsibility um, stays intact. Can you tell us when emergency management started in tribal communities and give us a brief history? This one is probably going to um, shock some people. Um, maybe, maybe not, but it wasn't a formal process, uh, emergency management, at least in, in tribal communities. Um, I think everybody understands and knows that tribal nations and tribal communities have existed in the North American continent for thousands of years, uh, way before the mass immigration uh, from other parts of the world. But tribes have been doing emergency management since that time. Um, it didn't happen with the formalization of the United States government and the laws uh, that were passed and enacted by the federal government. It's, it's more than what you would call uh, perhaps a guess or an assumption that Native people were impacted by disasters, what we call disasters um, in the modern word now, before non-Native contact. Um, but most of those events uh, were from natural causes, um, thunder, lightning, floods, uh, tornadoes, uh, earthquakes, all of those things um, that we call disasters in the modern world were things that were happening in times before uh, other people came to this continent. So we as Native people have been doing uh, emergency management in, in dealing with those those kinds of incidents and events, but believe that most of those things or all of those things were part of the natural world, uh, something that just happened because uh, that was the way that Mother Earth um, existed and, the, and it was part of uh, our creation uh, to understand and accept those things and you deal with them as they as they happen. So We've been storing food, uh, moving to different places, not building homes on the edge of a river uh, just because it's a beautiful view or on the edge of the ocean because it's a beautiful view. We knew that there were going to be floods. We knew that there were going to be uh, times of high water where uh, things had to be, uh, or we had to move uh, whole tribal communities away from those areas to, to protect the, the people and, and their possessions. Um, but that's part of, uh, of who Native people are as Native people. There's, there's a lot of stories, uh, and I think it's also important that, that people realize and understand that uh, Native people did not write things down on a piece of paper. Uh, that our, our history is, is an oral history. So it's the, the stories that have been told about uh, stories of origin, how uh, Native people and tribes came to be, and how they chose to settle in, in homelands, uh, in ancient lands. Those, those are part of the oral history that, that tribes tell, um, and along with how do you protect yourself? Where, where do you go uh, in the wintertime uh, rather than uh, stay where you are and, and be covered by blankets of snow? You know, it is move, move to a warmer climate. Uh, don't stay in Wisconsin like I do where it, it gets to be unbearably cold and, uh, and we have a lot of snow. So the, 
uh, tribal people were a little smarter than, than that. Uh, they moved to where they needed to go to protect themselves. Part of the, uh, uh, the creation stories and the origin uh, of, of tribal emergency management and, and native people, uh, we refer to this continent as Turtle Island. Uh, in a lot of tribes, not not all tribes, because tribes are different. Um, but a lot of the the culture, a lot of traditions, and a lot of history um, is very similar. Uh, so we've talked about the floods and other significant natural occurrences that that played roles in developing tribal emergency management as as we know it from then uh, to today. Uh, so from the beginning until current times. It, it has uh, evolved as most other things have evolved over that period of time. Some of these, what would be called catastrophic events, as Steve said, are they're natural occurrences. And, um, but they've also have a part to play or, or you know, there are stories of, of origin um, by many tribes uh, and peoples in terms of how they came to be, how people came up from the ground or, you know, uh, from a disturbance or in my tribe, there's a bird that survived uh, this long ago flood uh, and, and this bird became revered and, and it was a messenger to the people. Um, it would, you know, uh, notified people of, of war, uh, parties if they're near, you know, where game might be or who might be in the neighborhood, whether it's soldiers, whatever that might be. Uh, there are stories you know, some tribes have of, of um, about individuals in tribes who uh, had the uh, ability to cre to connect with the natural world around them, and as Steve said, would know what was impending. There would be a rough winter, or uh, that something was coming. Of a, a friend uh, from another tribe out in the western part of the country was saying that there's a story. You know, that's part of their uh, culture about centuries ago, the whole tribe moving, you know, a thousand miles away, probably, perhaps in, in, in modern terms, because there would be, there was going to be volcanic activity in there. And so and there was, and but they stayed uh, away for a number of years before they returned. Uh, so they knew these things, um, and, and there's, I guess, there's a lot of notification from about these occurrences from animals and spiritual beings, and, and you know, it's, some people refer to it as like a, a mysticism, but it's just natural connection to the natural world um, and that uh, native peoples have um, by virtue of who we are and, and, and what we are. Um, but that's, um, there's more to it than, you know, our survival is more to it than federal programs and, 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 and trust responsibility and, 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 and living under, you know, constitutional form of government. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's what makes us who we are and, and, and how we continue to, to be here. With that, I, I think that, you know, we'll, uh, we've, covered uh, the historical uh, portions of uh, uh, Native peoples, and which has not been all that uh, relevant, perhaps to um, emergency management. Nevertheless, it is the basis of who we are and what we are and, and how this federal tribal relationship uh, came to be. And, and perhaps in the next section, we'll look at emergency management in, in country, uh, the approach tribes take, um, why we take those uh, approaches. 
uh, and the overarching federal support, which has not changed that much, lackluster, and and not a surprise, surprise that this uh, it, it, it's characteristic of the federal tribal relationship of years past, um, present, and but we hope not the future. Thank you to Robert and Steve for coming on the podcast to share their knowledge with us today. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Robert and Steve about contemporary emergency management in the tribal community. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next time.